gift for you to your phone. Or I'm willing to auction it to the highest bidder. Oh, it's his Bible as well. How are you this morning? Good, fantastic. You know, this year we're talking about faith. We have a theme because as a church we sort of have three key words. We want people to be restored to God and in their relationship. We want them to be raised up. And then we want them to be released to serve, whether that's here or somewhere else. We actually really have a passion and a vision to be an apostolic hub that develops people to fulfill God's calling on their lives, wherever that may take them. We're not going to be precious about hanging on to people. And I really feel what God's doing this year in our church is that raising up. And so we're focusing on the theme of faith. And I'm going to talk about faith again this morning. And um, I'm pretty excited about what, um, what I've got to share with you because I've been studying it like you wouldn't believe. I know it in, inside out, back to front and upside down. Um, but what it is about faith is this. Faith is not an intellectual concept that sits in your head and we mentally have ascension or agreeance with because we all are Christians. That's actually not what faith is. Faith is a verb. It has to be acted lived out and in fact that's why we have you know as our sort of theme slide for the year we have up there it starts with hope then there's belief but then you've got to live it faith is something you do not something that you think it starts with a thought but it's got to impact your everyday living not just what we do on a Sunday as a community of believers but how you live tomorrow morning when you get to work or you drop the kids at school That's really what God wants to penetrate into our lives is we're supposed to live by faith, walk in faith, be faithful people. We're supposed to be transformers because we have so much faith in us and flowing out of us, God acts. That's what faith is about. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about faith because our faith, well, from my experience, It has to grow. It has to develop. It has to mature. I don't think faith can stay stagnant. I think if you have a stagnant expression of your faith, it's like a billabong or a small pool of water that eventually becomes, well, it shrinks, it becomes muddied, bacteria breeds in it, it becomes unhealthy, And really it's useless for not only humans but for animals to drink from. And I think if we don't flex the muscle of faith when we're under pressure, like a bodybuilder who strengthens their muscles by the resistance they feel, if we're not not feeling that resistance and forcing us to exercise faith, I think our faith is stagnant. And it stinks. Stagnant faith stinks. James, we talked about this a few weeks ago, James says... It's like a corpse. It's dead. That sort of faith, stagnant faith. So hopefully you'll have a bit more life in your faith today. That's my aim. Faith has to be nurtured. It's got to be stretched. You have it for a reason. One of my favourite historical sermons is actually by Charles Spurgeon. And it's on faith out of 1 Peter. And he's got this little great phrase. He, he, He illustrates faith as a sea going vessel. And, you know, you've probably heard this illustration. A lot of people um, who teach and preach use it, who talks about, you know, like a a ship is not designed to sit in a harbour. 
a, a seagoing vessel or a ship has to actually go out into the open ocean and face the weather, the storms, the unexpected. That's what faith is for us. It's a great, great analogy of faith. But he's got this little one sort of line that has always it brought a smile to my faith because he says, the very hint that we have faith suggests that one day we may have to use it. Is that not a great lie? Because we think faith is just up here, but it's not. And so we've got to nurture, we've got to feed or develop and mature our faith. Now today, I want to show you what I think is the key to faith, the very key of faith. And it's, it's an unusual story I'm going to read from Luke chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles there um, or if you've got on your um, smartphone like Charles has um, or a tablet or whatever else you're taking, um, look it up. Some of you got that joke, but we're going to read from Luke chapter 7, just the first 10 verses. The key to faith, I think, is in this story, and it's a discussion between Jesus and a Roman centurion soldier, a man of muscle, might, war. He's a Gentile. It's, it's the most unlikely source that we would expect to hear the very key to how faith works. We would expect it to come from some apostle or from some God-fearing Jewish person in Scripture who understood what faith is. In fact, I'm going to show you, Luke tells us, Jesus' response to this Gentile warrior about his faith. It's the only time in Scripture that Jesus is shocked and amazed at how much faith one person has. And he's not even a God-fearer. Credible. Well, he just comes out of left field. So we're going to look at this particular story, but let me set it up for you a little bit. I'm going to show you, um, it's, it takes place in this little town called Capernaum. And if you go to the next slide, I've got a little point here. I'm going to show you a couple of things about Capernaum. This is Capernaum today. It's an archaeological site. It's not the full, the full town hasn't been dug up. But it's actually the place where Jesus does most of his ministry. So for those of you who know, talk about biblical narrative, for those of you who know the story of Jesus' ministry life, in approximately three, three and a half years, he actually starts in Nazareth. So where he's from, he's obviously from Nazareth, and he goes into the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil, filled with the Holy Spirit after that temptation, he goes into the synagogue, in Nazareth and stands up and reads that verse out of Isaiah, today the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to heal the sick. You know, you know, the, you know the story, right? Well, the reaction of the synagogue leaders and the rest of the Jewish people in his hometown, they're horrified at the way he read that scripture. No one had read that verse in sort of the first person, that I'm it. This is me. I've been anointed to do this. And so actually they drive him out of town. They try to throw him off a cliff. So Jesus can't stay in his hometown. And he heads off to a region that's called Galilee, which of course the Sea of Galilee. The word Galilee just means circle. And, and so this, if you look at a map of the Sea of Galilee, it looks like a bit of a circle. And there's a whole lot of villages dotted around this sea. Capernaum is one of them. When Jesus gets to Capernaum, he actually encounters some of the, eventually, who become the apostles or the disciples. So like Simon Peter lives there, the apostle Peter. And in fact, one of the first miracles that Jesus does is he heals 
Peter's mother-in-law. I think he was just trying to win friends. Something about healing mother-in-laws, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. In fact, Jesus uses Peter's house as a base. That's where he lives for a couple of years and he goes to the surrounding villages outside, out from Capernaum and comes back and goes back out and comes back. This is his home pace. And this is actually where he, about where he lived. So you can see on this slide here, this, um, this little white building here in the middle is actually the synagogue. Now, it's not the synagogue that Jesus taught in. This one was built around the 3rd or 4th century. We know that because it's using imported stones that's not from that, that area and the inscriptions are from the 3rd or 4th century. But guess what? Underneath that synagogue is the one Jesus actually taught in. It's incredible. And it's more of a black salt sort of rock that they used. And that other dome-shaped building is actually a church. It's called the Church of St. Peter because when they started archaeologically digging this site, they found a number of inscriptions in at least 12 homes. So those homes, that so the synagogue was really the centre of town and these 12 homes that they dug up, there's inscriptions that say like things like this on the walls, Lord Jesus, help. Incredible. These are actually inscribed on the walls in Capernaum today. They're still there. There's other inscriptions that say, Christ have mercy. There's another inscription that has Peter's name and it's that house that's protected by that dome. So the theory is that could have been where Peter actually lived and where Jesus lived with him. Now that dome is actually a church so they've actually put like a glass floor over that archaeological house and they've built a church. You can go to church over Peter's house in Capernaum. I've never done that. I've been to other archaeological sites like Ephesus and so on. But So here is the town. Now this town was very important because it's actually on a main road at the time. There's no main road there now. Although I noticed when I was looking at it, see that little double-story house? Fancy living next door to an ancient site like that. That's a, that's a modern house, that one. Um, there's a, an ancient road that led all the way up to through Syria and even through Damascus. So Jesus used that road with the apostles. And so it was a bit of a thoroughfare. It was a fishing village and mainly fishermen, so of course Peter's what? A fisherman. And also farmers that live there. So they're the people that Jesus often taught and preached to, um, the Sermon on the Mount and all that sort of stuff's around there. So this is Jesus' home base. The demographic is these are hard-working um, people. A lot of Jews live there, hence the synagogue. Um, but not only Jewish people. Galilee was known as a place for foreigners to live, non-Jewish people lived in all those areas around Galilee. That's one of the criticisms that the Pharisees have about Jesus. He's always speaking to sinners, Gentiles, pagans. Well, that's because that's where he lived. He lived around Capernaum and all the surrounding towns he visited to preach and to bring good news to everybody. So here is Simon Peter's house and the centurion we're about to read about actually was the main Roman officer of the town. So let me tell you a little bit before we get to the the actual reading of the text, let me tell you about Luke. Luke is actually not Jewish. He's Greek. Now he's an author. In fact, most people don't realise this, he authored more of the New Testament than any other writer. A lot of Christians assume it was Paul because Paul wrote many smaller letters to various Christian communities. So the church at Ephesus, Ephesians, the church of Galatia, Galatians. So Paul wrote 
numerically more smaller letters, but if you put the Gospel of Luke and his sequel, so Luke purposely wrote a sequel to the Gospel, we call that Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. Those two books together have more words than any of Paul's writings put together. So he wrote over one-third of the New Testament. Very intelligent, educated man. We know that from his writing style, but also, of course, we know him as a physician. He was a doctor of the era. So he was a well-educated person. Now, you need to know that because the way Luke writes, he's a craftsman. He's not just throwing a few stories that he heard. You know, he he travelled when he... Um, came to faith he was traveling with Paul and John Mark on their missionary journey so Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark so he knew people who knew Jesus firsthand and of course you imagine the conversations the teachings and the sermons that he heard um, the one-on-one discussions about Jesus himself so Luke has really authored this from first-hand sources and so he really like a tapestry weaves together a gospel to make some points. And there are three key themes in the Gospel of Luke. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied and he's the Saviour. In him, you find salvation. So that's, that's his main key point. The second point he makes over throughout, and this is right through Luke Acts, the second key point he likes to make is that it's for everybody, this Gospel. Now you have to understand he's non-Jewish He's writing about a Jewish Messiah and he's writing to an audience who are not Jews, mostly probably Romans, the, the, Luke, um, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So he is he's, he's interesting. He includes a lot of discourse with women, which was not common for a, for a Jewish rabbi to speak to women was a no-no, was a taboo, which of course Jesus did. So he talks a lot about Gentiles. He includes this story of a... Roman warrior centurion because he's making a point that the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ is for everybody. It doesn't matter what your gender, your race, your faith, it doesn't matter what your history is, it crosses all boundaries. This salvation is for everybody. And here's the third thing that Luke likes to do and one of my favourite things, I think most people who read the Bible miss this one, He teaches more about the Holy Spirit than any other New Testament author. He is, you you start reading the very first chapters, he talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus in the wilderness to be tested. After the temptation, full of the Holy Spirit, he returns to Nazareth, stands up, filled with the Spirit, and reads from Isaiah. It's Spirit, Spirit, Spirit. When you get to Acts, the sequel, it's exactly the same. It's the Spirit through the Apostles. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit to appoint these people as leaders. It's, he's, he's so focused on trying to help us understand we live in the age of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is three key themes. Salvation through Christ, it's for everybody, and we live in the current age of the Holy Spirit. That's what Luke does. So let's read the text. And I forgot my glasses, so I'm getting a bit older these days. So if I, make, if I throw in a few more words, don't stone me to death. Um, I, think, I think I'll be right. So this is Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this, now, by the way, that is the Sermon on the Mount. So the, pr- the previous few chapters, is, is it's actually really not a mountain. It's sort of like a, a hillside plain that Jesus sat on and taught the crowds around Capernaum. So when Jesus had finished that Sermon on the Mount, 
he says here, um, he entered Capernaum. So he's gone back. So he's already been there. He's already done a few healings there. News about him had spread. So he healed um, Peter's mother-in-law. He'd healed a paralytic man um, who was, you know, the dug, you know, the digging of the, through the roof and the four friends lowering it down. That happened in this, this town of Capernaum. So here's, go to the next slide. Thanks, thanks, Ian. So he returns to Capernaum. There's a centurion servant, so the servant of this centurion, this Roman officer, one of his servants, um, whom his master highly valued, was sick and about to die. Now Matthew records this same story and Matthew uses a word to say he was paralysed. They're not really sure what illness he had, but he's on his deathbed. He can't get up, he can't move, this servant. So verse, verse 3. The centurion heard of Jesus. You can imagine the news in Capernaum, not a big village. He would have heard about the miracles, the driving out of demons. He would have heard all this stuff. So he's heard about what Jesus has done. And so he sent some elders to the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly. This is the Jewish elders on behalf of the centurion. They pleaded earnestly with Jesus. They say this. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Second half of verse 6, which is a new paragraph. He was not far from the house, that's Jesus, is not far from the house, when the centurion sent some other people, so some friends, to say to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now take note of this last little paragraph in today's text. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He was, the word is actually shocked, astonished. He's, he's taken back emotionally. And turning to the crowd, probably mainly Jewish people following him, on the way to the centurion's house, he says this, says this to the crowd, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel, God's chosen people. Then the men who had been sent returned to their house and they found the servant well. That's incredible, isn't it? There are a couple of things I want to pull out of the text here. Number one, the centurion Jesus never actually personally meet. Centurion hears about the miracles because he's in the town. He probably knows Peter. You can imagine in a small village, everybody knows each other. So he, he's got firsthand, he may have not personally met Jesus, but he knows these boys in Capernaum who've experienced healing. And so when his, one of his servants gets gravely ill, he sends some Jewish leaders to go on his behalf. Now the reason he does that is there are social structures and taboos in this culture. Firstly, a Gentile and a Jew speaking is not, is not normally sort of tolerated. You do it because of political issues and because you have to have some interaction. You certainly, as a Jewish rabbi, would never enter into a Gentile's house. It's unclean. Now, notice Jesus is on his way there anyway. But it's interesting that the centurion 
keeps to the social taboos. And he sends some Jewish leaders that he's been working with and probably good friends with. After all, here's the second thing. This centurion built their synagogue. Now, he's not Jewish. There's no indication he became Jewish in any of Matthew's version or this version. We don't hear of him again in the Gospels after this story. But he at least, he was a man who understood how to interact across social barriers and racial issues. And he was quite happy to actually serve them and to make sure they had their place of worship. He didn't have to do that. Now financially, we know through archaeology that centurions were paid pretty well. On average, 15 times a higher salary than the average person. So he had some money in his pocket and it's interesting he either financially made that happen or, and also made sure or oversaw the construction to make sure that synagogue was built. So he had favour with the people that he's basically the local police force under Herod Antipas. So that's the authority that he refers to that he's under. He's under Herod. He's got soldiers under him, could be 60 to 100. You know, the word centurion means 100. Most of the time it was 100. Sometimes it was 60. Sometimes it was 80 that a centurion had control over. But here he is, he had some currency, some relationship with the people of Capernaum, of which really he was the local police force. Effectively, that's how it worked. So he was a man of, well, I think he's sort of guy you want to be friends with, wouldn't you? I mean, he knew, he knew how to be um, giving, sacrificial. He knew how to interact, even though he wasn't part of that culture. Um, he was generous. So he wasn't just the local might um, for Herod to make sure that everyone falls into line under the Roman rule, which, of course, the Jews hated. So it fascinates me that Jesus says about him, he's never seen such great faith in all of Israel, that he's non-Jewish man. The other thing that amazes me is the centurion never mentions faith. Jesus does. Jesus doesn't even commend him for all the good things he's done for, for Jewish, for God-fearing people. Jesus doesn't make mention of his humility. And in fact, if you look, um, there's a real contrast the way Luke writes this. If you look at verse, um, verse 4, when the Jewish elders come to Jesus, they plead with Jesus because he's, you know, he's a nice guy, he built our synagogue, you should go and help him. You know, he's worthy of your help. That's what the Jews say about him. But the man himself, when he sends the second group, he's probably heard that Jesus is on his way to his house. So he sends a second group to meet Jesus, which was common. As an official, you didn't actually meet with people one-on-one. -on -one. You'd send someone on your behalf. So he sends his second group to say, and listen to his words, I'm unworthy to have you come into my home. So he, he's very humble, he's generous, but Jesus doesn't commend any of that stuff, the building of the synagogue, his humility, and theologians, if you read, read any theological books, they talk a lot about how humble this man was, which is true, but what I found fascinating is Jesus doesn't commend him for any of that good stuff that we would think is worthwhile. But it's the key thing that he says through his friends to Jesus that captures Jesus' attention. He says, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. Because I'm a man under authority, 
and I have authority under my own group. In fact, if I say to one of my soldiers, go, that soldier goes. If I say to my servant, come, my servant comes. And it's that phrase that captures Jesus. As I said, there is no other time in all the Gospels that Jesus reacts in a positive way to someone's amazing faith at this level. It's the only time it's recorded and he's not even a God-fearer Jewish person who's been looking for a Messiah to come. But his insight to the key about faith captures Jesus so much, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach all the Jewish people in the crowd at how great this man's faith is. And he's not even in the kingdom. Faith crosses all barriers, social, religious, you know, all the things that we get stuck with in terms of our culture hierarchy and how things work. Jesus responds to faith. That's what we have to understand. And the key to faith that the centurion had is simply this. He knew it was about the authority that Jesus had. That's the key to faith. It's the authority of Jesus. So think about this. Here's a man who knows power and might, a centurion, warrior, commander-in-chief, if you like, over his own troops, taking orders from the top above him. He understands about authority. And he's heard, never seen or met Jesus as far as we can tell, but he has heard that Peter's mother-in-law got healed from a fever. He heard that the paralysed man with his four friends when they dug through the roof was actually forgiven of his sins. Now that's the issue that the Pharisees got upset because when Jesus, you, read, you read the account of the paralysed man in Capernaum getting healed and lowing through the roof, Jesus, the, the, sorry, the writers say, when Jesus saw the faith of the men, so his friends, he says to the paralysed man, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't heal him straight away. And that gets the, the few little religious leaders who are in the room at the time, in the house, that gets their goat up. Only God can forgive sins. I love Jesus' reply. So he says to them, mind you, they never actually said it. They were thinking it. The writers say, thinking to themselves, only God can forgive sins. Jesus says to them, well, which is easier, forgiving sins or making a lame man walk? What's the answer to that question? Think about it. What's the answer to Jesus' question? It's a rhetorical question. What's easier? For him to forgive sins or for a lame man to walk? They're both only things God can do. That's the answer. So then he looks at the man and he says, rise up and walk. Take your mat, go home. That happened in Capernaum. So the centurions heard about this, probably met the guy, probably knew the paralysed man because this is a local village. And yet he's thinking, so this is what I think is happening, the centurion's thinking to himself, I understand authority. I command troops. I control this whole village. I understand what it means to give an order and it's carried out instantaneously. But I've never seen a man command physical sickness. I've never seen another man say to someone who's never walked, get up and that guy gets up. I've never heard that before. And there's other stories of demons being cast out of people on the command of Jesus. The very next story that Luke puts for us is actually a dead person being raised to life. 
and he does it out of compassion for the boy's mother. And the, the centurion had never seen or heard of someone who has that sort of authority. See, faith is about knowing the authority that Jesus has. And this centurion had new authority inside out personally. He understood the ability to give an order and it had to be done. It was done. If it was his will, his soldiers or servants would carry it out unquestionably. Automatically, instantaneously, it was done. That was the way of that world. He understood that and so his perception of hearing the stories and meeting these people who had been healed and hearing other stories of what Jesus had done in other villages, he knew it was about the authority. He had never, ever seen anyone have authority over life, death, sickness and demons. And so it's in, what I find striking is he never mentions the word faith to Jesus. I think it's hilarious. But Jesus nailed what it was. The recognition, the key to faith is knowing that Jesus has penultimate authority in this universe over everything. He is the creator, sustainer of life. There is no one like him. And what happens for us, we think our faith grows over time if we just see something more. You know, I saw a friend come to faith and that was pretty spectacular. I've been praying them for a few years and, you know, my nephew had a cold and the local pastor paid, prayed for them and they got a bit better. And, you know, so your faith sort of grows a little bit more. You may go to a healing rally or meeting and I've seen, you know, I've actually seen a physical limb get a little bit longer and, you know, so your faith can grow a little bit more or you hear some healing, you know, evangelist is coming through and you go to the meetings and people fall over or, you know, demons cry out and so your faith grows a little bit more. No, 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 no. That's not how faith's supposed to grow. That's going to take you a lifetime to get this much faith. Faith is about authority. Now, let me pick on Noah. Noah's a policeman. When a policeman stands in the middle of the road and puts his hand out and you're travelling towards him at 60 kilometres an hour, what do you have to do? do has anyone ever not stopped? No, don't, 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 don't run him over. Has anyone not stopped ever? In this room. Well, you, you cannot stop, Noah. It's authority. Now, I, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a, if you've heard me teach a little bit, I think our culture seeps into our Christianity and we're unaware of it. Australians don't like authority. I don't like it. Do you like being told what to do? You ever been to another church and they tell you where to sit? They actually take you down and put you in a seat. What does that feel like? Yeah, that's right. I'm walking out. I think, I think you know, whether it's our heritage, you know, our, our you know, European roots, I, I'm not sure. But as a culture overall, we don't like authority. But let me tell you, you better get used to it. If you're in God's kingdom, he has all authority. That's the phrase Jesus used before he ascended back into heaven to the apostles. He says, all authority has been given to me, therefore you go. So under, Jesus is under authority through his father, therefore you go and do it. He gives us his authority. Faith is about authority. It's not about what you believe or saying to yourself, didn't work last time, I don't think I can believe this time. Because that's what we do. That's our problem. Our problem is we're waiting for the spectacular. We're waiting for a sign. 
We're no better than, than the people of Jesus' day who actually said to him, give us another sign. And he said, even if someone rose from the dead, you still wouldn't believe. Faith has nothing to do with signs. In fact, healings in Scripture are only pointers to who Jesus is. The sign itself is nothing. It's a, it's a pointer saying, look at this guy. He's not like anybody else. And that's what the centurion understood. Not, not even a godly man. And Jesus says, even in Israel, I haven't seen it. Now, not that Jesus hadn't seen faith in Israel. That's actually not what it means. Some people teach that, but in the original language, Jesus is not, the the way Luke writes it, is not condemning Israel. He's making a comparison. He's seen faith in Israel, but for goodness sake, this pagan understands faith is authority. Now, here's the other, here's the last twist I want to tell you, which I think, again, is hilarious. The centurion says, just say the word and my servant is healed. And Luke doesn't even include the word. Let me read it again. Let's read that last, last, last paragraph. Oh, I can't say the number, so I think it's verse 9. <laughs> I need some glasses. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following, he said, I tell you, I have not sound such faith, even in Israel, Then the men who the centurion had sent returned to the house and found the servant healed. There's no mention of any word Jesus saying. Because get this, it's not about the word, it's about who Jesus was. And that's that's why I think why Luke doesn't even include what Jesus actually said. The word's not even in there. But it's faith is in the authority of who Jesus is. He is the divine he is over all other powers and principalities. He is over all of creation. There is no authority that is higher than his. He does not amanah about what to do next. He knows it clearly what his will was. In fact, we were worshipping in song the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done, your kingdom come. That's authority. There's nothing to do with us trying to sort of muster up a little bit more belief. It's do we perceive and understand the total, awesome, incredible power and authority that Jesus has? That's faith. It's knowing the authority of Jesus. That's the key. And if a pagan can get it, surely we could get it. Now, most of us in this room are pagans, technically. But if we're Christians... We should get this teaching that Luke has crafted for us so well that faith is knowing the penultimate totality authority that Jesus has. And if he says the word, it will be done. Over any problem that we could ever face, any sickness, any disease, even over death. I mean, who else has the power over death? Nobody. Because they didn't create life. They were not resurrected like Jesus was. He has the power over death. He has all authority. And that's the issue of faith for us. We don't need to see more miracles. Now, miracles will happen, do happen, should happen. But if you based your faith on them, your, your, your level of faith is going to be like a, an accordion. It's going to go in and out all the time, depending on what's happening and how good the circumstances are, how long since you saw the last you know, demonstration of supernatural power. 
It's nothing to do with that. If you base it on that, you are going to be one stagnant, stinky Christian where your faith is just like a corpse. I just think it's incredible that a non-believer gets it. Incredible. But you see, he knew authority. And that's all it takes. So here's what I'm going to get you to do this week. I'm going to ask you to do something. All I want you to do is if there's an issue that you're facing right now, maybe a physical sickness or some sort of circumstance where you feel your faith is being under pressure, you feel that resistance towards you exercising your faith, just pray this simple prayer. Jesus, if you just say the word, it will be done. Just pray that prayer, just that one sentence. Now, you might want to pray it every day all week, a couple of times a day all week. You might only pray it once. It doesn't matter how many times you pray it because it's about His authority and His will. Not it, Prayer is not an incantation for magic. We're not trying to force Jesus to do something He doesn't want to do. It's His will, not ours. But if it is His will, it will be done because He will just say the word. It's incredible. The centurion Jesus never met face to face. It astounds me. But the centurion knew that distance, geographical distance, was no barrier to a command for someone who has that sort of authority. And that's what we've got to get here. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven today, but that is no barrier for him to send the word to make something happen from your prayer. That's not a barrier. The distance between us and Him physically, I mean, spiritually is right here, right? We have the Spirit of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. We know that. But He just has to say the word and it will be done. So do you think you could pray that prayer? Now, I want you to be genuine if you pray that prayer. Don't just fluff it out or, you know, something, oh, maybe God might want to do this. I've been thinking about that. No, I'm talking about when you've got a conviction that something's not right here and you know if you just say Jesus, if you just say the word, it will be done. And just see the authority that Jesus has. It's unmatched in all of creation, in all of the universe, in all the spiritual side of of creation. There is nobody who has the same power and authority of Jesus. And knowing that is great faith. That's how faith works. That's the key. Let's stand. I'm going to pray for us. Father, forgive us for at times we're so ignorant. We try to digest the idea of faith. We, we hear different ideas of how it works. But to know this one thing of your power and authority that is absolute, magnificent, total, supernatural, dominant, you have no rival, no equal in authority. That gives us great faith. So, Father, for all of us here today, if you convict us to pray that prayer this week, let your will be done, God. It will be done. Just say the word, Lord. That's our prayer. Jesus, if you just say the word, we know it will be done. And, Father, may our faith increase. May we be faith-filled people continuously. Lord, let your spirit convict us, grow us, change us, that we would be so full of faith 
We would believe for things that no one else has ever believed for. Even the things that we've doubted in the past, may our faith overtake that because we see the authority that You have. Our faith is in You, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. We're going to finish the service right there. So stick around for a tea or coffee. If you're visiting with us, please go and meet our host at the Connect Lounge just at the end of the auditorium. There's some great um, fresh coffee available in our cafe. If you want some prayer for anything, why don't you come to the front as, as we finish the service. And if I can have the ministry team just come, we're going to spend some time ministering. Otherwise, have a great week. I'm going to close it there. The Lord bless you. You're very quiet. You, you can talk now.